The Machine Kind Podcast is brought to you by GAI, NVIDIA, and Dell Technologies and produced by Government Executive Media Group Studio 2G. Artificial intelligence is showing up everywhere, from our daily commute to shopping online to watching television. Federal agencies see the benefits of AI to their constituents, too, but haven't yet fully realized its potential. Getting started on implementing an AI solution can seem daunting. That's why GAI, NVIDIA, and Dell Technologies are here to help, partnering with government agencies to accelerate their path to artificial intelligence and deliver on mission value. To learn how to get started with AI, visit gov-acq.com. In 1956, a group of scientists gathered at Dartmouth University in Hanover, New Hampshire, to work on a summer research project. It wasn't top secret by any means, but it did draw some of the brightest minds in research and technology at the time. Dartmouth math professor John McCarthy organized the project and invited scientists from companies like Bell Telephone Laboratories and IBM, which had just rolled out the first commercially available scientific computer, the IBM 701, just a few years before. It weighed 20,000 pounds. This project was related to the new field of what was then called automatic computers. But the scientists who gathered at Dartmouth that summer were chasing something bigger. You might say they were studying the art of the possible, how to make machines use language, solve problems, and even improve themselves. In short, how to be more human. We think that a significant advance can be made in one or more of these problems if a carefully selected group of scientists work on it together for a summer, the researchers wrote in their proposal. And that's just what they did, commandeering the third floor of the Dartmouth Math Department for the next two months. In the end, we know that a big breakthrough eluded them, but the project marked the birth of a movement, created a new concept, and coined a new phrase. As it turned out, John McCarthy's summer research project was the first study on artificial intelligence. Welcome to Machine Kind, a new podcast from Government Executive in collaboration with NVIDIA, Dell, and GAI, exploring the art of the possible in artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Constance Sayers, president of the Government Executive Media Group, and we're recording this live from our studios here at the Watergate in Washington, D.C. My guests today are Jay Lamke, president of GAI, whose technology career dates back to the late 1980s, and Dr. Alexander Cott, chief scientist at the Army Research Lab. Artificial intelligence seems like a new thing, but it's actually been around longer than you might think. In this episode, we're going to tell you more about the evolution of AI research and where things stand today, especially in the public sector. Dr. Cott knows a bit about the early days of AI. He was researching AI approaches to invention of complex systems in 1987 when he was working on his PhD in mechanical engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Cott, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure having you today. We'll start with you. Thank you, Corny. So take us back to 1987. What was the state of artificial intelligence like then? You know, Connie, by 1987, AI had already gone through at least one major wave of hype, and that was back in 1960, followed by a wave of disillusionment and funding cuts in 1970s. But then, by late 1970s, the AI excitement has bubbled again after showing some practical successes in solving problems like product configuration and medical diagnostics. Important. In early 1980s, four smallish but well-publicized companies emerged and they specialized in AI. They were called the Gang of Four and usually were started by professors at major universities. These were companies like Intellicorp, Inference, Technology, and Carnegie Group. 
I got bitten by the AI bug around 1983. I was a mechanical engineer at the time, and I wanted to automate some of the recurring engineering tasks, like design of products. So I did my PhD research. I started probably in 1984, 1985, on how AI can invent novel thermal cycles, things like engines, turbines, and so on. And it actually worked. So by 1987, I needed a part-time job while finishing my PhD, and I joined a very prestigious at the time company called Carnegie Group in Pittsburgh. It was started by several Carnegie Mellon University professors in 1983, a few years before I joined them. When I came there, they said, you see how many of our guys have ponytails and earrings? That's AI. Carnegie Group had big industrial investors like Ford, Boeing, DEC, US West, and we did a lot of custom applications for those co-owners of the company. I remember doing some AI-based design automation for Ford car components. Then I came up with a generalized software, which was based on AI planning techniques for configuring custom electromechanical products. I worked with a major manufacturer of custom electric motors, and we automated their process of preparing preliminary designs for hundreds of requests for quotes that they were receiving every week. My colleagues also worked on other large projects like generalized software for developing automated maintenance diagnostic applications. Uh, they were called expert systems at the time. And also for mechanical translation of maintenance manuals into multiple languages. There was all kind of interesting stuff. And this is all done at uh, when you were... It was all done while I was working at the Carnegie Group in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so, you know, just pivoting a bit to, you know, government and, you know, kind of the history there, because it used to be that really only, only you know, government agencies and, and other places could really afford to have some of the big computers. I mean, the cost of running a computer, I think, was, was $200,000 per month at one point. So, you know, the people that could actually afford to be doing some of this were probably limited to certain places at the time. You know, actually, uh, computers and their prices were changing very rapidly yeah. at the time. Uh, so this was a, th those were dramatic times when yeah. people were suddenly realizing they can actually afford a computer and they can actually afford a lot of computing time. Uh, so this was all changing very rapidly and, and there was a wide diversity of possibilities. So. Yes, government certainly was uh, very interested in what we were doing, and uh, in particular, we got a lot of attention from the uh, various branches uh, of the military. I remember working on a very large system for the United States Transportation Command. These are people who are flying and moving everything around for the military. And we worked on a particularly challenging problem called air medical evacuation, and that's a very complex problem with many complex constraints. Uh, and you got to have the right planes at the right places at the right time. You have to combine multiple patients because you can't send one large plane for one patient, not, not usually. Have the right flight nurses with right credentials and equipment available to match that plane because not every plane can take every kind of equipment or every kind of a patient depending on uh, condition. And a lot depends on how urgent the delivery of the patient is to the facility and so on. It's a very complex problem. Uh, and uh, the transportation command did not do very well with that. And during the first uh, Iraq war, they were sending patients to wrong hospitals. Uh, it took very long time. So Congress got involved. Congress got upset about it. In 1993, the United States Transportation Command got uh, orders from Congress saying, hey, fix this. Uh, they said, it's 
got to be AI. What else can possibly do that? And uh, and so they came to us and we did it. Another exciting project, which I, I think still has uh, significant relevance, uh, was a prototype expert system for the Army CERDA, Communications Electronics Research Development Engineering Center. And uh, that system performed semi-automated battle planning for an Army brigade-size combat operations, synchronizing all the actions and movements and fires and resupply and intelligence collections, taking into account constraints of enemy counteractions and terrain constraints, timing, how, how fast can you move, how fast can you overcome enemy resistance, available resources, and so on. And we got it to the point that in most cases it did as well as human planning officers, and of course much, much faster. And this is just a couple examples of uh, what we have done um, at that time. This was late 80s, uh, early 90s. And that's how long you've been kind of on the public sector side after you left the Carnegie Group kind of? You know, I left the Carnegie Group only in early 2000s. Uh, I went to DARPA because I've been doing a lot of uh, research for DARPA. At and of course, DARPA played so, a big role. And DARPA played a huge role in funding uh, AI research and trying to push it uh, along. Uh, sometimes they would stop funding it, and that very often coincided with so-called AI winters, in other words, periods when AI was no longer popular, and companies like Carnegie Group, for which I worked, started to, to avoid the word AI. They were talking about, you know, intelligent computing, and they were talking about computational intelligence, and they were talking about advanced computing and this and that. AI became a dirty word for a while. So it's interesting how it all came back. And it seemed like it was definitely more project-based than it was, we're going to try this, we're going to try that, and it wasn't really like a sustained type of investment for anyone. That's kind of what you're saying. So... uh, to a large extent, we try to reuse the same methods and all, some of the underlying software, but these were uh, custom systems, mm-hmm. custom applications for a variety of customers who had different needs. Uh, so a large fraction of the methods and techniques uh, had to be reinvented mm-hmm. every time. And, and Jay, I'll just uh, turn to you. You've been in the tech space uh, since the late 1980s. Um, where in the you know government industry, and you've certainly worked with federal, state, local education, what levels and, and where have you seen the most invention in, in innovation and in how AI is used? Well, that's a that's a big question. There's so much happening right now. Um, the, the pace of innovation that we're seeing right now in AI is unlike that which we've seen um, at any point in time that I can remember. In fact, um, I, I think if you project out, there's not an area in the next 20 or 30 years of our personal and professional lives that AI will not have impacted. I, I love the term um, AI winter. I had not heard that before, but uh, it appears that we're at least in an AI spring uh, at, at a minimum. And so there's a lot of innovation that's happening. And um, so specific in the federal uh, space, what we're seeing is where you would expect where AI is really good is at uh, sifting through massive amounts of complex data and understanding trends or anomalies and that type of stuff. So really being able to classify and sense certain things in, in large amounts of data. And so that's where we're seeing the benefits. And then how that manifests in actual kind of agency benefit and where we're seeing a lot of the federal activity now uh, for one in the healthcare space, um, a lot happening in healthcare, and that's an area where I think um, in DoD healthcare and federal healthcare, uh, not to mention the commercial space, where AI can have potential profound impact on how we identify diseases and deliver 
medicine and so forth. Um, intelligent video analytics, we're seeing a bunch of activity around there and potential outcomes from that. Workforce automation uh, is an area, this whole notion of, of taking both mundane and complex um, tasks and being able to automate those. Uh, seeing huge activity and potential gains around uh, fraud, waste, and abuse. So if you look at how much uh, just Medicare, Medicaid, and IRS lose every year through fraud, waste, and abuse, the potential impact to help solve that problem is, is just profound. And so we're seeing a, a lot of potential, a lot of activity and potential benefits coming from fraud, waste, and abuse. Cyber threat detection and remediation. Um, you know, detecting cyber threats is really kind of a tailor-made problem for AI. It's, um, if you look at what happened with Target when they had their breach, one of the things that they said was, we had the data that told us what the problem was. We just couldn't find the data in amongst all the other data we had. And so the ability to detect what matters rapidly and zero in on that is, is, um, offers an opportunity for really big impact. Um, autonomous sensors, and then this um, whole thing that Dr. Cott referred to in one of uh, one of his comments around what we now call platform sustainment, predictive maintenance um, on airplanes, ships, tanks, you, you name it, uh, automobiles, the ability to have to position the right parts in the right place at the right time to make sure that the platforms stay operational the majority of the time. And then, so, so one of the things I mentioned was workforce automation. I'll go, I'll go back to that. One of the early impacts and on-ramps we see are, I call it kind of training wheels for AI um, that we're seeing a lot of activity around is um, robotic process automation or what's called RPA. And so that's this notion of <clears throat> having a software robot that performs fairly mundane tasks, right? Often does them very effectively. And like with everything else with AI, the machine doesn't take a break. It doesn't commit the errors that a human being makes and so forth. And so we're seeing a lot of activity in the RPA space and using that as an on-ramp for the customer to really understand kind of how that can impact their ultimate AI activities. Those were some great examples. And I mean, Dr. Cott, I think um, I'll turn back to you for a second. Um, most federal agencies have really just started dipping their toes into the AI water. And Jay just uh, highlighted automated tasks and streamlining process. The Army Research Lab, where you work, is much further than that. It's developing a synthetic partner that would help soldiers do their jobs better. So tell us a little bit about the story behind behind that. That's a very interesting story. The work at Army Research Laboratory, um, where I'm the chief scientist, is very diverse. We cover a lot of ground. Uh, among all that work, uh, among this very diverse portfolio, there are some particularly important and large programs which we call essential research programs. And one of them is called Artificial Intelligence for Maneuver and Mobility. And what we are trying to accomplish in that program is to build AI-enabled systems for autonomous maneuver on the battlefield. Systems that can rapidly learn, adapt, reason, and act in multi-domain operations. Multi-domain meaning air, ground, cyber, very importantly. As Jay mentioned, cyber is a problem that is tailor-made for AI. In fact, certainly not tailor-made for humans. So the question that we are trying to address in our research and in developing some potentially practical system is, can we deliver a resilient, autonomous, off-road navigation? Not on the road like self-driving cars, which operate in a very structured environment. There are roads, there are signs, markings on the roads, there are other cars. No. Can you do it off-road? 
in the very difficult, very chaotic environment of the battlefield with all kind of features that are around you, and none of them are very regular or structured. And it has to be done at a serious operational speed. You can't just slowly crawl through uh, through the battlefield terrain. You have to move fast because there's an enemy out there, and if you are slow, they will take care of you. That autonomous system also has to have a recognition of uh, trying to save itself uh, from the enemy or position itself into the position of advantage. In other words, the easiest route very often is not the best route. It may be the worst route to take if the enemy is watching it. And uh, so can we enable those systems to understand the scene, what's what's in front of them, what does it mean, and uh, put together all kind of sources of information, not just visual, but audio, also perhaps uh, overhead imagery, also radar imagery, and so on and so on, and put it all together and interpret it in a way that will help it to move autonomously. Of course, all this has to be done in the conditions where uh, we have to uh, deal with a sophisticated enemy, which is capable of deception, capable of jamming the communications, and so on and so on. So this is what we're working on, and uh, we expect that such autonomous capabilities will become necessary, and they will become a ubiquitous part of the future battlefield. Now, the problem, of course, is that it is one thing to develop an intelligent AI. Another thing to develop an intelligent AI that actually understands the human being that it helps, its human teammates. That is much harder. So we need to find ways, and we're developing those ways, for the AI to understand what the human teammates are trying to accomplish, and for the human teammates to be better at understanding what AI does. Right now, AI very much is very much a black box. It just does something, and it cannot explain itself. And this may be, in fact, an unsolvable problem because AI doesn't think like we think, and therefore it may be impossible to explain. Nevertheless, we're looking for ways to at least make it more transparent as to, okay, why is it doing this? Why is it saying it needs to go to the left? Why not to the right? And uh, so this collaboration between AI and the humans is a huge challenge, and we're working on it kind of gets back to the conversation we had earlier about arguing with our GPS. <laughs> a little bit about how do I become a better uh, teammate to my GPS system. And, and, and Jay, let's uh, talk about how you go from thinking about AI to actual execution. If you were to outline a path to AI, what would it look like? I, I will say that, you know, as these new technologies and, you know, always come up, I mean, the first thing I always hear when we're doing events and we're doing things with government executive is, um, no, nobody really knows where to start. It's like we have all this technology, but like, what's a good first step? How do people begin? Yeah, so, so a question we spend much of our time working with our customers on. So a great question, and <clears throat> as you can tell from some some of Dr. Cott's comments, uh, ARL and some of the, and a lot of the DoD and in the intelligence community are are much farther along down the spectrum in terms of of engaged in real programs. What we see in other parts of the federal government is they're anywhere on a spectrum of maturity um, with where they are in terms of engaging in AI. So one of the things that, that my company, GAI, does a lot of um, relative to this is we have a series of, of um, executive AI courses that are specifically designed to help the line of business owners and the executives in each of the agencies understand kind of what is AI 
And then how do you go about implementing AI? And so how do you start to tackle this problem? And so, um, and, and we have a five-step um, process that we walk them through, and I'll, I'll share that here in just a second. But, but I would first say that the one thing that we coach them heavy on is don't try to boil the ocean. Find a single solution that you think AI can solve that has major impact on the mission and surround that particular thing. Don't try to do too many things initially. Just pick one and go. And so so the first thing is, is really identify the problem, right? So it's identify a specific area of challenge with delivering your mission that you believe AI can solve and, and start on there, right? Surround your efforts around that. <clears throat> Next is get the endorsement. So um, it's critical. I can't underscore this enough that you define a clear ownership structure and you have buy-in at all levels in the organization because these projects kind of ebb and flow. Um, the results are sometimes um, not immediately known, and so it's critical to keep the funding and the, and the ownership in place, and you do that by making sure that there's engagement and ownership all the way up and down the leadership chain. Uh, number three is access the capability. So in order to do that, we, we coach our customers through doing an assessment internally of the skill sets and the capability that you have internally versus what you're going to need to go external for. And given the relatively early um, state of where AI is in the federal government in terms of practical application, much of that knowledge that our customers are going to need is not contained in them. It's they're going to typically have to go outside for that that uh, capability. And so um, number four is really look for partners, right? So partner for both capability and capacity. And, um, and then my coaching to customers on that is if you're going external, you're going to have to partner for that or contract for that. That's okay in the beginning use that engagement to teach your organization and develop the in-house capability as time goes on so you don't have to keep going out for that. It's critical that our customers start to develop this um, capability inside the all parts of the organization because, as I said earlier, AI will ultimately impact almost every part of these organizations, and so it's critical that they start to get the in-house knowledge. Um, and so one of the best ways to do that is partner for it initially and then bring that in-house. And then the, the fifth thing is, is really kind of a, an ongoing thing that we call create the right mindset. And so this is the whole notion of making sure that everyone who's impacted by the AI understands that this is a process, not an event, and that this is an ongoing thing that's going to require some level of change management, if you will. And so creating that expectations, you know, I had an old boss who said the the formula for happiness is expectation minus reality, and if you and so it's important that you set proper expectations in the organization, and then com can continue to communicate to that. So it's creating that mindset on an ongoing basis. I think so. We we see that working. What strikes me just from like for both of your stories, I mean, you, um, Dr. Cott, have kind of a, a laboratory that's. I mean, you have a working laboratory that you're you're doing this amazing outcomes from, and, and you're really pushing the technology. And then what you're trying to do, Jay, with your with your customers is try to like they don't have a laboratory. Then they're trying to like how do they take the best of you know kind of what you're doing, Dr. Cod, and then kind of put that into their own agencies because it can seem intimidating. I mean, I think you know what you're doing is amazing, Dr. Cod, but it's just I don't know that we can expect every agency, and, and they might get intimidated by that and think like well, there's intimidation there, and then there's as I said before, just the the general lack of ability to to do it right. So first I need to understand the problem, and then I need to get the capability to start solving the problem. And so, 
Yeah, it's a. Because um, they don't have they don't have a natural laboratory environment that you know that, that you have at the Army Research Lab or at DARPA or other places. So it is definitely yeah. And and as ARL or and DARPA and and uh, DIUX and, and they know is this not only this, it requires um, more than just a lab as you mentioned. It requires a commitment of investment and infrastructure and people in order to sustain that effort. This can't be a this can't be a one-time thing, right? This is an ongoing, this is the beginning of a very long, very complex process, and it requires leadership and commitment and investment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it takes a whole ecosphere. It takes a whole environment of different types of players, um, uh, advanced research at laboratories, uh, practical applications, industry, actual users, um, putting together all these capabilities. It is, you cannot just draw the line somewhere. It is a continuous process. It is an ecosphere where all kind of important players contribute their own important elements within the overall system. Um, a final question for you, Dr. Cott. I mean, the meeting at Dartmouth was over 60 years ago. You were tinkering in the lab at the University of Pittsburgh about 30 years ago. What do you think the future of AI is 30 and 60 years from now? You know, Connie, like uh, Jay said, we are certainly at a kind of discontinuity point in the last few years. Things have been developing so rapidly. I do believe that although perhaps they will not be developing as rapidly as we have seen in the last uh, several years, there will be a continued strong move towards uh, greater capabilities in a, a related world. Uh, I think we are in the midst of the most profound change in the human civilization in general, including warfare, but also all kind of other endeavors of human mankind. It's not unlike the invention of agriculture, really. Not unlike uh, domestication of the horse. We suddenly have this domestication of an alien intelligence. We suddenly have this invasion of alien intelligent life forms in our human civilization. In a few years, we will find ourselves in a world where we are only one of the intelligent species, and we will have to get used to it. That's a radical transformation, and such radical transformations in the past have not been particularly smooth. So we will have to see how well we can manage this transformation. So uh, just to mention a few ramifications of this invasion of a, a different uh, intelligent life into our civilization. For example, the cyber defense and uh, resilience will be largely handled by artificial intelligent beings, not by humans anymore. I think the networks, you know how important networks in our world currently are? I think networks kind of will disappear. They will be replaced by kind of a society of intelligent beings, some of which will be artificial and some of which will be uh, natural. Well, I don't know. Maybe it will not be so natural to be a carbon form of life 30 years from now. We humans will have to learn to trust AI and to depend on AI. And in some ways, we're already there. Uh, we use navigation apps. Some of us, like you, Connie, argue with them. And some of them, like I, I just accept it. It says, turn to the right. I turn to the right. I don't argue. You know, the whole industries are emerging, like uh, Uber. They are only possible because somebody tells all these inexperienced drivers where to go and where to turn. They could not exist otherwise. Uh, we're all filling out uh, tax forms using a variety of uh, tax filling programs, right? And uh, we're getting, getting used to it. It says, well, take this deduction instead of that deduction, and we just push the OK button, right? This will be a different world in which we will have to coexist with, no kidding, real 
real teammates that are AI-based artificial intelligent beings. And Jay, I'm going to give you the last word. So how do you envision AI will evolve over the next few decades? Well, I think Dr. Cott said it very well. I, I said earlier, I, I think that there's not an aspect of our personal and professional lives that AI will not impact. This is, um, this is what I call the rising tide that will ultimately lift all boats, um, caveated with assuming we manage this properly as, as society. Um, just to give you an economic impact, um, there's an estimation that AI will contribute $16 trillion to the economy by 2030. That's trillion, not billion. That's a profound number in terms of its economic impact. And so just to add a couple of, of more impacts and use cases and things that will happen in the next 30 years to what Dr. Kott said is um, natural language processing will become commonplace. So w one of the things uh, Dr. Kott referred to is, is a soldier interacting with AI and AI understanding and interacting with a soldier uh, in a very complex, chaotic battlefield type situation. Um, one of the key aspects or underpinnings of that is going to be the advancements in natural language processing. And so it'll, it'll manifest in ways like that. It'll also manifest in ways where when you call and talk to a machine, I spend way too much time talking to my airlines as much traveling as I do. And, you know, you get that little automated thing that goes when you're, when you're waiting and it's terrible and you keep saying agent, 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 and it just keeps putting you through these loops. But in the very near future, it's gonna be commonplace to interact with a system and really not be able to tell if it's a, if you're interacting with a system or a human being. And, and that's very powerful. It freaks some people out, quite frankly. I think it's, um, I think it's very powerful in terms of its impact, right? And in, in a very positive way. Autonomous vehicles. So um, we, we talked about Uber and navigation and so forth. I tell my children all the time, my kids are out of college and in the workforce, and I tell them while they own a car, they probably won't own a car later in life, and their children will almost certainly not own a car and will never know the concept of automobile ownership because autonomous vehicles will be commonplace. They'll be highly available. You'll step out of a meeting or whatever it is, and you'll summon a car, and it will come pick you up. And by the way, if we do that effectively, we free up the number of parking lots in the world and covered spaces and use that asset in a very different way is very, very powerful and has very profound impact. So I think this whole notion of, of autonomous vehicles, passenger cars, freight, um, if that occurs effectively, it allows us to come out of a two-dimensional transportation system that we have today. So you got to remember everything we do from a transportation system, with the exception of air travel, is in a two-dimensional space. And um, so if we can be effective with autonomous vehicles and, and low-flight vehicles, we can now turn uh, roads into three-dimensional spaces, and so you don't have to keep paving the planet, right? And a lot of good stuff there. Um, I, I said earlier in healthcare, I think the diagnosis and delivery of healthcare, the opportunity there and the impact stands to be just incredibly profound. I hope that's very positive because we certainly need um, some positive advancements in, in healthcare that don't end up costing the consumer so much money. So I think there's opportunities there. Early stuff happening there where um, with the ability to do early detection on cancer and other anomalous type cells uh, d detect that way earlier than a, than a doctor, even the best trained professionals can. And so, so I think it'll have very profound impact. And, and then the last thing I would say is, and this is not a prediction of what I think will happen, this is more of a sincere hope. And that sincere hope is, I sincerely hope that the U.S. federal government seizes and retains and, and hangs on to a lead in the AI space. And, and I can't 
say that en- enough. If you've ever read Kai-Fu Lee's book called AI Superpowers and the New World Order, one of the things he says in there is he who wins the AI race wins the world. And um, there are bad actors and nation states out there um, investing heavy in AI today, and it's not AI for good. Um, they intend to upset the balance of power in the world, and they have they believe this technology gives them that opportunity to do that. And so it's critical that the good guys, us and others like-minded like us, win this space in time. Dr. Cott made a reference to societal upheavals, basically, on in certain technological revolutions. This is a technological revolution that the good guys must win. And so uh, having said that, I will tell you, I see there are some super smart people in the federal government who are committed to solving uh, the challenges of AI and committing to creating and maintaining a lead. Um, it's exciting to see what's happening here. And so um, I, I hope that we continue along this path, um, but it's going to take more than just smart people. It's going to take highly committed leaders with funding that follows and the patience to see projects through and not expect an immediate impact. This is a this is a mini-inning ballgame we're playing right now, and we need to win. And we need to have some more AI springs, or at least... Yeah, no more winters. No more winters. <laughs> On that, I will thank you both, um, Dr. Cott and Jay Lamke, for joining me today um, on our on our podcast. Thank you so much for your time and uh, and and great insight. Thank you for your question. Yeah, thank you. for listening to the Machine Kind podcast brought to you by GAI, NVIDIA, and Dell Technologies. The potential for AI in government is limitless, from cyber to healthcare to humanitarian response. The next step is for agencies to understand and embrace the use cases and start testing. AI implementation is now more accessible than ever with the help of partners like GAI, NVIDIA, and Dell Technologies. To learn more, visit gov-acq.com.